Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Senate Republicans say they're going to fix the health care system by July 4th, but they won't say how. A jury couldn't convict Bill Cosby or the officer who shot Philando Castile. And we're wondering about the effectiveness of all three branches of government. This is Sarah. I'm a Democrat. And Beth, I used to be a Republican. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So we're covering the Cosby and Castile verdicts today, as well as we're going to talk about the health care debate in the Senate. And in the Hills, as always, we'll discuss what's on our minds outside of politics. But before we get started, we want to talk about our Patreon membership drive. It's still going on. We'll keep the Patreon page up, but we're really trying to hit our $3,000 goal. And we're just a few hundred dollars short. And Beth is going to tell you what we're going to do once we hit that $3,000 goal. I'm going to, I've started saying when we hit $3,000, not if. So when we hit our $3,000 goal, we want to do a special series where we talk about living in a nuanced way outside of politics. And the New York Times published a piece back in 2015 that got both of our attention called How to Live Wisely. There's a series of exercises used by Harvard students to reflect on life. And so it talks about what you value how well your commitments line up with your goals, the kinds of things that make a life worth living for you, what you changed your mind on in the past year. And we think that these could be really interesting conversations to have, really interesting ways to engage all of you in the conversation um, and just kind of take the things that we've learned in having discussions about politics and apply them outside of politics. So we really want to do that series soon. We're excited about it and appreciate everybody who's contributed so far. We hope that more of you will find enough value in what we do here to uh, become patrons as well. So patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. We have blog posts. I did a travel log from my time in Great Britain. There's a whole world of content um, there for you, and we can't wait to produce this series for everyone when we hit that $3,000 mark. 
So it's patreon.com forward slash paintsuitpolitics, or you can go to paintsuitpoliticsshow.com and click become a supporter. We really appreciate it, you guys. In the pearls today, we wanted to talk about two verdicts in criminal trials that came out in the past week. The Bill Cosby case was tried and the jury could not reach a verdict. And then the officer who shot Philando Castile was also acquitted, acquitted this week. And there was a lot of outrage about both of these situations. I'm a little bit surprised by how uh, personally, I took the Cosby hung jury, Sarah, and I was interested in your thoughts on that. Um, well, I think that with this trial, it's so difficult, I'm sure, for the jury to really be just deliberating on this trial. There, I mean, that this whole narrative and this whole sort of developing situation with Cosby with one woman after the other after the other coming out has been going on for so long. Like there's, I I would, I can't imagine there's a single jury member who hasn't been influenced by the ongoing press coverage. And, you know, I am not really well versed in the particulars of this crime. I knew that this, um, this, the victim in this case, the sports, um, she was like a sports coach or something, right. at, At a school he had been a supporter of was a very reliable witness. And I heard that her testimony went well, I just think that Bill Cosby has had decades and decades to build sort of a reputation and a case. And that's so hard to undo. It's so, so sad that they, that it's a mistrial and I hope they still pursue it and go to trial again. One of the things that makes this case so symbolic is that many of the women who have accused Bill Cosby of similarly assaulting them, um, are barred by statutes of limitations from having those cases tried. And so this case was sort of the, you know, representing more victims than just the victim in this case. And that's hard because our court system is not equipped to do that. Mm. Our court system is only equipped to try th- the case about one person. Well, you know, I was sitting with my family tonight and one family member was like, why did she take the pill? Like, why would you do that? Why would you be so stupid to take the pill? And I'm like, um, lots of things here. He is a person of authority. He's a celebrity, but I don't even really need to debate this with you because it really doesn't matter why she took the pill or should she have taken the pill? It's what he did after she took the pill (laughs) that matters in this case. And, but it's just so people are, there's so many opinions tied up in this and for better or for worse, there are still a lot of antiquated ideas about rape culture and um, when, how, and whether or not someone should have consented or did consent. And it's just really, really unproblematic. I had another family member say, they're just in it for the money. And I was like, really? All 60 of them in a criminal case where there's no money involved? Okay, that's cool. It's hard. I said to my husband, you know, he doesn't dispute that he gave her a pill. Mm-hmm. There's there's dispute about was it Benadryl or was or it? Or if there was sexual con- contact or not either, does he? He admitted well, so that, that too. Right. So So that's where I'm lost. You know, yeah. he, he gave her a drug and then he had sex with her. I'm I'm lost on where the confusion is. Mm-hmm. And my brain is kind of tied up in knots about both of these verdicts for a couple of reasons. One, and I haven't said anything about them on social media because of this. I cannot begin to understand the impact that race has in either of these cases. And as a white woman, I feel very uncomfortable providing much analysis when I know that I'm missing enormous chunks of what really matters in both of these cases. So I'm, so I'm troubled, just I'm troubled by my own ability to even process this well by that. Well, I'll tell you with the Philando Castile verdict, I have felt, and I don't know if I'm projecting or I just want this to be the case, But I felt a shift with this verdict because, look, I was sitting with my all-white family and it was universal. What the hell? (laughs) He shot him five times. He it's all it's all on video. How could this how could he possibly have not been found guilty of just manslaughter? And so I don't I don't see anybody really 
trying to make the case with regards to this um, police shooting in particular. And what I have been hearing more than I've ever heard before is that it, in, instead of sort of the ongoing debate we have about the behavior of the police, there seems to be a new, um, it's probably not new. People have been saying this for a while, but like sort of a conversation coming to the forefront about the fact that the legal standard is hopelessly flawed. Um, and just a little background, it all sort of the, the standard that police officers are held to originated in a 1985 Supreme Court case called Tennessee versus Garner. And basically it says that any use of force has to be objectively reasonable, but that standard is really impossible to violate because you really can't, you can't use, um, you know, hindsight to judge them. And you really can't say, well, you shouldn't have felt threatened. And so it's just, as we've all seen with these cases over and over again, it's an incredibly hard sort of level of review to not meet because it just gives the police officers such a strong sort of assumption of innocence. And that's probably not a good legal term to use there. But I just think I feel like I've been seeing lots of think pieces and sort of calls for reform that say like, look, it's this problem is that the legal standard, like it's definitely important that we train police officers and have this conversation, but also like we should all agree that there are times when police officers should be held to some sort of criminal standard. And if the, if it's, if we're just going to say, well, they, if they feel threatened, then they can do whatever they want. Like, this is where we end up in situations like this. Well, that's the second thing that has had my brain tied up in knots. I really believe in the presumption of innocence. I really mm. believe in keeping as many people out of jail as we can. I believe that it should be extremely difficult to convict someone. So with both of these cases, I have this visceral sickness that this police officer and Bill Cosby haven't been convicted, how do I square that with all the other things that I believe about criminal justice? And so I've been trying to kind of work through that, you know, that, that it's hard to second guess a jury because you, you don't know what the analysis was. And, and our system says that if the analysis isn't, we're a hundred percent sure we don't convict. And, and I believe in that. And so I've just kind of been struggling through those things. I I think part of the reason that there's a shift around Castile is because, and this is awfully cynical of me and that's not how I want to be, but because gun owners are saying, wait, he did everything they teach us to do. mm -hmm, Really important aspect of this. I've seen coverage that says that the NRA was basically pressured by their membership to take a stand on this case in particular because he did exactly what you're told to do. I ha- I'm concealed to carry. I have a weapon on me. And it got him killed, along with the fact that um, I'm going to go ahead and say that he was black. I don't think that that's a stretch to say that the officer was reacting to that. Um, he believed that he maybe was involved with the robbery. Well, why did you believe that? So lots of things there. But I think that that is a really interesting component of this case. And I do, you know, I just, I understand that police officers do incredibly difficult jobs. And I'm not saying that every police officer that discharges his his or her weapon should be thrown in jail. No one's arguing that. But I think that there should be a standard that holds police officers um, responsible not just like any other citizen, but at some level responsible if they kill somebody who was innocent and not carrying a weapon and did not move. And, you know, that I read an Amnesty International report that I'll put in the show notes that said that called for sort of a, a use of lethal force, except where it, only where it is necessary to protect against an imminent threat of death or serious injury, as opposed to just you believed you were under serious threat or injury. So a more objective standard than just sort of impossible to tell apart against your subjective judgment. It was pretty shocking to me when I started doing research for this episode that one of the very first articles I saw was from National Review saying what a miscarriage of justice happened in this case. And I thought that has to be related to the the gun industry. And I, I think it is. Yeah. Can I bring up another legal case that I thought was really interesting this week? Are you going to talk about the texting case? 
I do want to talk about the texting I've case. I've been wanting to talk, talk to you about the texting, texting case? case too. Yes. I think it's so interesting. Well, first of all, it's not a jury trial, which is the first interesting part of this case. I'm very surprised by that too. Yeah. It's such so a, this case. Go ahead. So in case you didn't know, there was two young teenage friends, both of which had suffered from uh, mental illness and mental problems. And um, the the victim in this case had said for a long time that he wanted to commit suicide, that he was so depressed and he I think he'd attempted suicide in the past. And so you have this string of text messages from um, the young woman accused in this case who was found guilty of texting him. You should do it. You should kill yourself, really talking him into it, giving him ideas. When he got to the place, I think that he, he did carbon monoxide poisoning. He got out of the truck at one point and t- called her. And she told him to get back in. She later told someone she told him to get back in. And she was found guilty. Was it manslaughter, Beth? I think it was manslaughter. Yes, manslaughter. And it was sort of shocking because there's this idea that, you know, legally that if you are not there and there's sort of this broken um, chain of command, not com- chain of command. I don't know the word I went. Causation or something. Causation. I mean, that's more of a civil concept, but I think we're applying it in a reasonable way here. And so, you know, it's, it was sort of shocking. I think the legal community thought like, well, there's no way that, that they find her guilty. And the defense had argued that she, there was, there was really a, apparently a light switch that was sort of flipped at one point. Her, her medicine changed and she went from really pushing him to get help to just feeling like she was helping him by encouraging him to kill himself because he was so miserable, which I thought was really interesting. I, I thought one of the arguments that really struck with me is the, the prosecution basically argued like in this day and age to say, because you are not physically there, um, there's no responsibility is, because we have such the power through technology to really be there, even if your body is not standing there, that that legal standard is maybe no longer relevant. I don't know. I thought I, that sort of, I get that. what do you think? I get that too. I am so conflicted about this because I, I get all of the reasons that she has responsibility here. And I also see this goes back to what I was saying about my feelings about criminal justice. This doesn't seem to me like a person who should spend the rest of her life dealing with a a conviction. Yeah. And uh, this seems to me like a person who needs treatment, not incarceration. Right. And I think this is a tragedy that just has so many layers and it just got a new one. Yeah. And it makes me so sad. And they don't think that I, 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 it seems to be the consensus is that it most likely will not be held up, upheld on appeal. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And it's a slippery slope in terms Mm. of, the body of law and where this could go. Because if you think about if she has culpability for the suicide of another person when she was not there, and my understanding is that she did not assist in any way other than this encouragement via text message, what else could we be criminally liable for in terms of the actions of others? I mean, I, th- I think it is a scary legal proposition. But interesting to talk about. (laughs) Interesting to talk about. And look, when I start thinking about it as a mother and I think about bullying and I think about, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's not that I think what she did was okay. I'm just, I'm concerned if we decide that it's criminal. So do you have a compliment for the other side, Beth? I do. And this relates to the discussion that we're going to have in the suit. I wanted to compliment Claire McCaskill, the senator from Missouri, who has not been shy about letting Republicans know that she wants to talk about the health care bill and she wants time to read it and she wants to be at the table to negotiate it. And I think she has been really a good representation of what leadership looks like here, because I haven't seen her be overly nasty. She doesn't feel to me like she's in campaign mode on this. It feels like she is genuinely trying to say, hello, everyone. This is not okay. Let's work together on this. And um, I don't think she's being listened to, but I sure do appreciate what she's saying. Well, Claire McCaskill is a breast cancer survivor for one thing. So I think this is probably very personal to her. I like to pretend that Claire McCaskill is my senator because I don't live very far from Missouri. So in my uh, most angry moments at Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, I just pretend that Claire McCaskill um, represents me in the Senate. And that video that we'll put in the show notes about um, 
where she calls out Orrin Hatch at the meeting and is like, let me, let us do this. Let us help. And she makes the very good point that yes, Obamacare went through on partisan lines, but that Republicans were able and did add many, many amendments and definitely steer the process and due to their concerns and their um, amendments really changed some of the bill. So um, I thought that she did a great job. And she seems to fully acknowledge that there is still work to do. And I appreciate that as well. It just, I think the way she has approached this makes her very credible. So I am going to compliment Donald Trump. I'm sitting down. He has reversed for now his campaign promise to suspend DACA. And for anybody who doesn't know, DACA allows, um, certain undocumented immigrants who enter the country as children or minors to, they get like a renewable two year period of, um, like deferred action on deportation. So they are going to continue that program and still do the two-year periods. So bravo, because that is ludicrous to send children home for a decision they did not make. And from a country, the only home they've ever known. So I hope that they make this decision permanent because the other areas of immigration enforcement right now, I will not be complimenting. I'm trying to really focus on this right now. So, Sarah, what do you say when you hear pushback? Because we had some on our social media channels, right? Pushback on praising this action by the president. I have a lot of trouble. You know, there are a lot of issues that I can, you know, sort of hop over the empathy wall and understand where people are coming from. I'm just not good at it with immigration. I feel bad about that, I guess. I just don't have a lot of nationalistic concerns, <laughs> not to say that everybody's that's concerned with immigration is nationalistic. I'm not trying to imply that, but like, I don't have the like Pat Buchanan, let's protect our culture thing. I don't have the, the laws or what are the laws matter if we don't enforce them thing. I just think that, um, particularly with, cons- with regards to people who came here as children, this was, I always think of that 30 days with, Morgan Spurlock, where he had the like Minuteman go see where the the um, undocumented workers had come from in Mexico and him saying, you know what, if my children lived here, I would do whatever I had to and I would break whatever law I had to to get them out of the situation. So I guess that's just where I'm at. You know, by the luck of birth, I don't have to break laws to give my children a better life. And I'm just not going to judge those who do. I agree with all of that. I, I should have stated my question differently. When you see pushback from progressives, on things like this, you know, because there's such this, um, I think unwillingness to take the president at face value on anything. And I think that's a justified unwillingness. So I'm wondering how you would respond to people who, who aren't going to give him this one, you know, or who view it through a lens of cynicism or, you know, I would say a reasonably skeptical place. Donald Trump responds well to praise. So let's praise him when he does something right. Um, And two, I would say. If you. Openly are hostile to him, even in the face of issues that people know progressive support, you lose validity, right? People are just. They're going to remember it. They're going to store it away and they're going to say they hate him no matter what, even when he does policies they support. It just undermines, I think, that your cause, if I'm being honest. Up next in the seat, we're going to talk about the Senate's work on health care. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. 
And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So today in the suit, we're going to talk about the upcoming health care legislation in the Senate. Beth, my fury for this current situation knows no end. I literally wake up two mornings this week. I woke up and the first thing my conscious mind thought was, I am so mad about what's going down in the Senate. And that is probably not healthy, but that's just where I'm at. I think that my confusion about this reached a fever pitch when I read Vox's piece where they just showed transcripts of conversations oh between God. Vox reporters and eight senators. Mm. And the and the Vox reporters are asking the most essential question that you can ask in any conversation, whether it's in business or politics. What problem are you trying to solve? Right? What what is this going to do? What problem is this going to address? And you would have thought they had asked that question in another language based on the responses from all but Lisa Murkowski, who was basically like, this is all horrible and I don't know what to do. God bless you, Lisa Murkowski. Come on our show. I'll say that. One yes. Time. I, I was so impressed. I mean, let's start <sighs> with something positive. I was so impressed that she had the moral fortitude to say and, and the clarity on the issues. Sometimes I wonder if anybody knows what insurance is. And Lisa Murkowski <laughs> said... I want the following things out of new healthcare legislation and explained them succinctly and then said, I don't see anything on the table that accomplishes these things. And I thought that was what we send people to Washington, D.C. to do. So, yes, Bravo. hats off, Lisa Murkowski. Well, first of all, oh, what's on the table? Does anybody know? Because I don't know. Orrin Hatch doesn't know. Orrin, Orrin Hatch, Hatch who's supposed know. to be part of the small working group, doesn't know. I mean, there's so many layers to this. Okay. First of all, it's going so quickly, so much more quickly than Obamacare. 
There are no hearings. There are no amendment processes. There's no write-ups. There's no CBO score. There's literally nobody knows what's happening except for the 12 dudes they picked, three of which are called John. There are three Johns and no women in a back room making a deal about this legislation. I don't think it's going to be that. And they're just passing out the most like ridiculous little packages to make some of the more vulnerable senators happy. They are clearly like the, I read that they think the sooner we get it through and the more secretive we do it, the less impact it has. Please, America, please, please let this be wrong. Because if Mitch McConnell gets away with this, there will be no end to what he does. He's only, he's already decimating the Senate and its reputation and its process. Like I literally laid in bed the other night and I thought, it does seem like Mitch McConnell as his career reaches what one would assume is retirement eventually has decided like d- let me see how much i can manipulate the system yeah it's like, shocking do you not want a positive legacy do you want to be written up in the history books as the person who removed insurance from millions of americans and most certainly left people to die without health care like That's what you want? Like, does he, I just think like, what does he think? What does he, is it just all ever about winning? Like, I'm just fascinated almost by the ability to do this. But the truth is, like you said about those interviews, it's not just him. Like even John McCain was like, well, we're just trying to get to the votes. Right. But what does it do? How does it change healthcare? Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, nothing yet because we're just trying to get to the votes. What? What about the actual policy? Does anybody care about that? Oh, yeah. McCain kept saying, well, there's no consensus. So there's no policy to discuss. And it seems like the problem they're trying to solve is one of having turned Obamacare into a dragon that had to be slayed. And now they must do something with it because they made it into that dragon. Right. Right. And and they can't figure out what to do. And that is the problem they're trying to solve. How do we slay the Obamacare dragon and not have too much collateral damage in the process? And I just don't see anybody trying to bring any policymaking prowess or creativity to the table here. Well, because they're stuck between moderates who say you, you we're not going to let you take away all the Obamacare things people like and the more extreme right senators like our own Senator Paul, who want repeal at all costs. And I've called Senator Paul's office numerous times and said, look, I'm not saying I'm ever going to agree with you, but can't you agree that we need hearings, that we actually need to know what's in it before you try to ram it through before July 4th? Like, how consistent, how is, can we just know what it is, not a bipartisan issue in a democratic society? So I think that this touches on an episode of Freakonomics that you sent to me and said, I want to talk about this recently. There are a number of things from that episode worth pulling out. If you haven't listened to Freakonomics interview with Steve Hilton, it's definitely worth your time. And one of the things that he said that really struck me, especially as this healthcare debacle is unfolding, is that there's no room for innovation in politics right now. And I think that healthcare is an area that calls out for innovation. So if you're a Republican and you really, on principle, object to aspects of the Affordable Healthcare Act, the Affordable Care Act, not the American Healthcare Act, there's so many acronyms at work here. If you think Obamacare is a dragon that needs to be slayed, make your list of reasons why and then say, okay, what problems am I trying to solve here? Okay, I'm trying to solve problems like Iowa has a limited number of carriers available on the exchanges. Okay, why would that be? And what other sources of healthcare are out there for people? And how can I get more lives moved on to the plans if I want the plans to be sustainable and I want a robust competitive market, which is what Republicans say that they want, right? And then you don't have to do all of this at one time. Congress could carve things up and set up opportunities or incentives for states to do more experimentation. 
A lot of us who objected to the Affordable Health Care Act, not the Affordable Health Care Act, I keep getting that wrong, the Affordable Care Act. I hate calling it Obamacare. I guess I should just embrace it. Just call it Obamacare. Okay. So a lot of us who objected to Obamacare did so because you're creating this giant thing and giant things are really hard to manage and fix. But the piece of Obamacare that I thought was smart was giving states some room to work within that because you could do some innovation state by state. Why wouldn't Republicans take a federalist approach to fixing this? where you could allow for some experimentation. You could say to people, look, we don't have all this figured out, but what we know is that we need to expand access. We need to bring premiums down and we need more carriers in these marketplaces, or you're just going to keep getting the same problems recycled over and over. Well, I think that what you're really coming up against is that I don't think Obama care and Obama himself was like, this has to be huge. I think it was, this is the best we've got to address these issues. And I don't think it was a lack of innovation. I think it was, it's complicated. It's hard to get everybody pre-existing coverage for pre-existing conditions and no lifetime caps without forcing people onto the, to get healthcare. And maybe they didn't force people hard enough. And, but if you're a Republican, you're definitely not going to come out in favor for trying to get more people on the exchanges because you don't want to force people onto it because that's big government. But listen, that's the solution, because if Republicans are saying that the problem, this is why they're all in knots and they're not making any sense. If Republicans are genuinely saying that the problem is that there aren't enough carriers on the exchanges, that's what they say about it, right? It's in a death spiral. Everybody's pulling out. There's only one carrier for this county. Okay, then what you're saying is that there are not enough people using the exchanges to bring carriers to those marketplaces that the logic doesn't line up. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. But they're never going to force people to come to the exchanges. Cause the thing about Obamacare is you can force people to have health insurance. Great. The exchanges don't work and the lifts on preexisting conditions don't work unless you have more people on those exchange plans. You're saying to people who've been on employer-sponsored plans the whole time they've been working adults, you have to have health insurance. Well, big deal. I always have, right? And I'm going to stay with my employer-sponsored plan and my dollars going into that plan do nothing to help you pay for all the folks who haven't had health insurance and are coming onto these exchange plans. Well, that's not that's necessarily true because there are some, there are a lot of insurance companies that have employer plans and also are in the exchanges. But it's not going to help the sustainability of the exchange plans long term. Right. Well, I think it's frustrating to me, though, about this, not to put on my jersey, but like we didn't really want the exchanges. (laughs) That was a Mitt Romney Republican idea. We want markets. We want free market. I mean, I I think, honestly, if you just left it up to the Democratic Party, they would have just expanded Medicaid to everybody. So I don't know. That's what's so frustrating about it is like. I don't really like, and I think that's where we're going, right? I think that um, single payer systems are becoming more and more of the conversation because they're like, well, if you don't like the way this is working and you don't think it's working, then that's fine. Let's just go to single payer. And I don't know if that's wrong. I mean, I think that the the exchanges, you know, the irony is that it was not, you know, Democrats from metro areas that were pushing for the exchanges. It was people like Grassley who wanted it in their rural areas, who wanted these options. But there's just not I don't know if you forced everybody in certain parts of Iowa to be on the exchange, if that would really make the market sustainable and accessible and affordable. I'm just and I'm not sure that that's not what the Republican 12 dudes, three Johns, four Johns. There's a lot of Johns in there are coming up against. I like that you focused in on the John's aspect of this. Do you? <laughs> it's so want, insulting. It's so insulting. Do you want to leave the funding of of a single payer health care system up to the United States Congress? I I mean I don't know any better options. I just I'm not sure. Look, I mean it's not like you don't still fight about. It. I mean that's just exactly what they just fought about and. Britain under that election. You guys aren't putting enough money into our healthcare system. And that's, you know, that became a flashpoint and it's not perfect. And they're not always happy with their systems, but like, I don't know, like you and I've talked about, we don't think employer-based healthcare is sustainable. 
See, I think the health insurance exchanges are a really good idea if you start stripping away all the incentives for employers to maintain their plans and driving more people to the exchanges. So now you have a good mix of healthy people and sick people and people who've always had insurance and people who've not had insurance. Because the only way that insurance works, I was just having lunch with someone in this industry and he put it so succinctly. He was like, it's insurance. It's not rocket science. The only way that insurance works is that really healthy people pay for the really sick people. And there are a whole lot of people who float in between those two extremes. That's the only way that it works. And I think that's true. And so if you have to get honest with yourself, if you're a Republican out there using these talking points about the exchanges spiraling and realize realizing that they're spiraling because we're still driving the vast majority of people to employer-sponsored plans. Well, I mean, I think that, that there's two, I don't know the exact number of employer-sponsored plans, but I think with the growing number of people that really don't work full-time jobs with benefits, I'd be interested to see what the actual percentage is, if it's really that high. I think that the problem with the market idea that you, with the, the insurance markets is in some places in the country, there aren't going to be a healthy mix. There's going to be really old sick people or a lot of people with chronic illness or a lot of people with opiate addiction. Like, what do you do in those areas where there's not this like great mix where people will just, will have all these healthy people covering everybody else? I mean, like in some rural areas, you have aging populations that soak up a lot of the healthcare. And I think the other side of this, which is not addressed in def- I'm not hopeful it's going to be addressed in the Republican plan. And it's sort of addressed in Obamacare, probably not strong enough is the actual cost. You know, there's a really great article I'll put in the show notes that I think I put in one of our emails about how, you know, it's like 5% of the population is 90% of the healthcare cost because you're getting people with like, you know, all these people are getting like surgeries their last month of life. And we're pouring all these costs into people. This is where we got with the death panels, right? Is the idea that we would sit down with a doctor and we would talk about this. And like in other countries, really it comes down to talking about how we ration healthcare. And that's a really scary thing. And everybody freaks out, but this article made a really great point. Look, we ration it now. We ration it based on who's rich and who's poor, but wouldn't it make more sense to ration it based on where the outcomes are going to be most effective? Wouldn't it be more effective to spend that money not on a 95-year-old on dialysis to get one more, you know, knee surgery as opposed to spending that money on a poor low-income mother for um preventative pregnancy care that will make her baby healthy so we're not paying for that baby for the rest of their life? I mean, I just think that we have to have hard conversations about where we spend our money and not within the healthcare system because we spend too much. So we can just keep trying to fix the insurance system. But if we don't address how much it costs and how much we spend and how we spend it, it's you can't really be truly innovative because you're trying to design a solution to a problem in a system that has a another, a total different fundamental problem. So you and I have had a number of conversations about healthcare. So let me see if I can summarize where I think we always come out. One, we both agree that addressing the cost of care itself is vital for the long-term sustainability of any system. Two, we both agree that Americans consume too much healthcare, right? That there are, absolutely that we're having surgery every five seconds with no better outcomes. Okay. Three, we both agree that under any system, there is a vulnerable population in our society that we are going to pay for their care, that we just have to do that as a moral imperative. Four, beyond that, you get into some really difficult calls about how to manage the cost of care, how to decide what's covered and what's not covered. And where our departure point is, is who we're more comfortable with making those decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, with those four points, I feel that we have had more of a debate on healthcare than the United States Senate has at this point. So I say kick the Johns out of the room. There are four of them. And let me and Beth in the room. <laughs> Problem solved. Moving on. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The one other thing that I want to say about this, and this is a point that I've made a couple times on the podcast, and it's really becoming important to me. And I can't remember if I said this when we were recording or when we were just chatting, but I've always thought about myself as a Republican because I care so much about the process. And I have, I have viewed the Democratic Party as a party advocating for specific outcomes, most of which I want to. But, but they're, they're about the outcome. And I have viewed the Republican party as being about the process. So it's sort of like the gas and the brakes and you need them both. And what frustrates me more than anything and makes me feel like a healthy portion of my adult political identity has been a lie is that what we're seeing here is that Republicans are not being the brakes. They're being the gas and they're being the gas, like running into a tree and not knowing why. And it's just, I don't know where to go from here if we, if we don't have a willingness to say, this is a really complicated piece of legislation. We need lots and lots of public hearings. We need time for everyone to read it. And we need to be able to do that without going back and relitigating how Obamacare was passed. Here's the thing. I think that Democrats sometimes have a well-deserved uh, reputation for being a little bit elitist and being a little bit like, you know what, y'all, we know what's best. Just trust us. I'm not saying we don't do that. 
We do. But what is so offensive about this is this is not even from a, we know what's best, trust us. It's a, we're going to sneak it by you and you'll forget or you won't notice or you'll just vote for us anyway. Like it's so insulting to the people who support Republicans. Like this bill is going to hurt older rural voters. It's so insulting to their own base. And like Sarah Clift was on Pod Save America because she's a great reporter, health reporter from Vox. And she wrote this really great thing about like, I've been watching this from Obamacare and I've never seen lying and sort of just terrible process like this before. And she's like, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe if they rush it through and people will forget. She's like, but ultimately people aren't stupid and they understand the impact on their own healthcare. It's why most people, only 8% of people support the house bill because they understand how it's going to affect them and they don't like it. So like, even if you legislatively slide this by, eventually these, these impacts will come to fruition and you're going to have all these people kicked off Medicaid and you're going to have all these people with soaring premiums. And like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, do you really think that no matter what, they'll just still vote for you? Maybe some people will, but like, I think that there are issues big enough to fundamentally shift party and their bases. And I think people's health care might be one of them. And I understand the frustration of going to town hall meetings and being yelled at over this stuff. I can't imagine what it would be like to go to a town hall meeting and have people, you know, having created corpses, right? And and the insinuation that I want people to die because of my position on Medicaid. I, I understand how difficult that must be, but you're not elevating the debate when you can't answer basic questions about this. It would be so much better to go to town halls and have conversations about cost sharing and prescription drug coverage and all of the nuances that exist within a healthcare scheme of any sort. We can't have those conversations because our senators themselves are not talking in those terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also would like to recommend not doing a corpse, but doing this awesome um, protest sign I saw from somebody who just painted a big old door. It was like a big red door and it had the United States Senate symbol and it was like closed session, making decisions without sharing the information or something. And they just put it out in front of their constituent office. And I was like, see, that's the way to do it. That Don't is gotta be mean it about it. That's not hyperbolic. No, that's a real thing that's happening right now. And I think that is really important and helpful. And I wish that our senators would trust the American people enough to try to have this conversation with us. On that note. I think that's a good closing. Trust us. Trust us, senators. Call your senators. Tell them to trust us. Do whatever you got to do, guys. We don't usually do calls for actions, but I'm the activist of this half, and I'm saying we got to call our senators. This is outrageous. Up next in the heels, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah, what you been thinking about? So I have been thinking about perfume. Do you wear perfume? I do not wear perfume. I do not like perfume. I'm very interested to hear where this is going. I don't either. I've never worn perfume, but one of my friends is working for one of her friends' company. First of all, this woman has the most amazing name. Her name is Kat Chen. That is a hell of a name. So she started this perfume company called Skylar. And my friend Sarah sent me like this little sampler of all their stuff. And I'll put a link in the show notes to her website. But and it's all natural because reason I don't like perfume is because usually I, I like the way it smells and then I spray it on myself and it just smells like alcohol. And I just thought that was like what perfume did on me. But I don't know if it's like the chemicals they use that she doesn't use because it's all natural, but it doesn't do that. And I really like it. And I always like perfume in theory because I feel like it's very grown up and I like the idea of like my boys smelling a scent and like thinking of me when they're all grown up and they're like, Oh, that's what my mom smelled of. Like, I like, I love those stories. I think they're so fantastic and smell is so powerful. 
So I'm really excited that maybe I can wear perfume now. So far, I'm really, really enjoying it. So how intense is the smell? Not that intense. Not that intense. That's what worries me. I think having kind of come of age in the, in the glory days of Bath and Body Works. Yeah. And Clinique. I, Remember Clinique Happy? Yes. I got really turned off by the strength of those yeah. scents. They give and me headaches. While, I can't even walk in Bath and Body Works. Well, for a while, especially like in a freshman dorm bathroom, everybody's walking around smelling like fruit salad and it's just too much. Yeah. And I think that's where I really lost my interest in perfume. So now I'm more of a mix a few drops of essential oil into unscented lotion kind of girl. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious and I do love the name Katcha and that's an awesome name. Do you do scented candles? Sometimes. Yeah. I'm really rare on that too. I don't do them either. I, I really just like kind of the way things smell without adding to that. Yeah. But I got three boys. So how long is that going to last? You know what I'm saying? It's true. My house smells a lot like chapstick right now. Jane the other night asked me if she could give me a makeover and I had been out of town for a while, you know, so anything that Jane asked me, I just said yes to. (laughs) So I close my eyes and I feel something going on my cheek that is a very unnatural sensation. (laughs) And then I feel her patting on top of that. Well, I realize what she has done. She's taken chapstick that smells like uh, Jolly Ranchers. Oh no! And rubbed it all over my cheeks so that she could get gold glitter to stick. To no, them. and that's then, actually a pretty good technique. Just I mean, I was that. impressed with her ingenuity. And then she starts um, smearing more chapstick all over my lips, and I'm like, "What is that smell? Oh, it's Hershey Kiss flavored chapstick." Ew. That she's yes. So I looked like I had been to a rave after she was finished <laughs> with me, and you smelled like a movie theater. Oh, it was horrible. So what are you well, thinking about besides politics? Scientology. <gasps> Did you watch Going Clear? Is that the name of it? I had already watched Going Clear. I thought it was really interesting. Was so interesting. Now Chad and I are watching Leah Remini's show on A&E, oh, Scientology and the Aftermath. We're really hooked on it. Leah Wait, is Remini, it streaming somewhere? It's, you can get it through the A&E app. I don't oh, know okay. if you can get it elsewhere. But it's... It's really, really interesting. It highlights. Because she was so, really good friends with David Miscavige's wife, right? Did I say his last name right? Yes, you did. And he is definitely the central character in Ugh. this show. I would and be scared if I was her to do that. I would be scared. And a lot of this show is her kind of looking into the camera being like, what? I'm not scared. Bring it. And she's pretty bitter and she's pretty angry. And you can see that she is really on kind of a crusade to say to other people, I do not want this to happen to you. Mm. I do not want you to lose as much as of your life and your money to this as I have. I mean, they say that just regular people, not celebrities, but regular people in the Church of Scientology are spending $250,000 oh. to pay for all of the books and the courses that you need. To kind of move up the, you know, the enlightenment kind of scale. What do you do? What do they call it? The, the procedure? Um, auditing. Auditing. Yes. And I've been particularly fascinated by this because the church that I attend, which is a Disciples of Christ church, is directly across the street from a Scientology church. And I've been really surprised that my area could support a Scientology church. And so I got on the website tonight and watched their welcome video about what that church is. And I don't know. I'm just really fascinated by it because I have a hard time defining it. One of the things I really like about this series is in the introduction, it says, you know, Leah Remini is going to expose this. And then it has this list of words just cycling. And it's like, corporation, cult, religion, empire, and it just kind of keeps filtering through. It's, I don't know. I'm hooked. I want to talk to people about it. Also, if you're watching this, I really need to know what you think of her nails. (laughs) Are they too long? Are they perfect? I I have to know. Chad and I are divided on this topic. I think Scientology is fascinating. I'm still, I still going clear, going clear was really brilliant. But like sometimes I think the best thing anybody ever did with Scientology was the South Park where they like they did the cartoon and the whole time Mm -hmm. it's scrolling like this is actually what they believe. This is actually what they believe. 
Um, I need her to rescue Elizabeth Moss, who it really upsets me that she, I think she was just raised Scientologist is what I've read. And she like maybe doesn't actively practice, but it just upsets me just the same because I think she's like the most talented actress of our generation. And I need somebody to get her out of that church so that I can have no conflict about my love for her, please. So like Leah Remini, get on that. Well, the other thing that makes this so interesting to watch, and a friend of mine pointed this out to me, I wonder if I would have seen it if he hadn't said this. There's something a little bit Trumpian about the whole system and the church. Oh, yeah. I buy that. The the way they speak in superlatives. How'd they never get their hands into him, I wonder? The emphasis on loyalty, the way it is kind of a scam. It's just sort of a money-making operation. Yeah. It's really, it's the parallels are really interesting. So, um, I think it's just starting in a second season. Chad and I are going back and making our way through the first right now. I would well, love and to talk they know to where the wife is it. now, right? She like lives out in the redwoods and they've gone, sent the police and she says she's fine. I they think found that's the wife. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think Scientology is fascinating. Okay. Well, as always, we have to thank our executive producers, my husband, Tracy Putoff and Leslie Kirkendall. We really love our new executive producing team. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter at Pantsuit Politic or Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Leave us a review on the Apple podcast app if you have time. It helps people find us, um, the podcast within the, the Apple podcast app. And as always, keep it nuanced, y'all. 